You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Mark, <laughs> Towner, Patrick, just the four of us this morning. Morning. Another week on the Beltway Briefing. We will be doing two more episodes this year, including I, I want to get our audience excited for the annual Christmas Carol episode. Patrick, I know that's your favorite episode of the year. I think it was actually your idea, so I have to give give credit where credit is due. Patrick's been composing for months. Well, Pat, no, I think to be honest, Patrick, and who, which speechwriter have you hired this year? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I've got uh, President Biden gave me permission to get John Meacham to do my Christmas. Good, good. <laughs> He's going to have an 18 piece orchestra behind him for his. <laughs> let's uh, let's start here, though. Mark, how was the state dinner last night? The state dinner last night uh, was uh, the first of the Biden administration managed to serve Maine lobster with minimal environmental impact. Little little friction from some of the lobstermen about Biden administration policies. But uh, America is back. That, that's what I learned in the headlines this morning after uh, the state dinner. But you weren't active. I thought you were actually at the state dinner. I was yeah? not actually at the oh. state dinner. I am privileged to have been at a state dinner in the Obama administration for the then prime minister, David Cameron of the United Kingdom. There's nothing that I've ever done that's quite like it. it it's a little bit like the political version of a Grateful Dead concert. So I did have a frame of reference for it. But it, 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 I'm sure, was uh, spectacularly done last night uh, by the president and the first lady. We, we had two clients at the state dinner last night. Not, not, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend to take credit for having gotten them into the state dinner, although I probably will be yelled at afterwards for not doing so. But, but yes, we had two, two clients at the state dinner last night. And, Are you uh, going to share with us? No, uh, no, no, I'm no, I'm actually not. Okay. Um, well, I'm now gonna, I'm going to have to go watch and pick I'm them out leave of the, it at that. The crowd. But one thing actually jumped out at me about the guest list, in addition, by the way, to the fact that we had two clients there, and that President Biden, who is doing very, very well these days, but why he sees the need to invite his entire extended family to the state dinner is beyond me including Scranton including his son who is a miscreant and under criminal investigation I don't understand why every single thing the Biden administration does involves Hunter Biden as a political or other matter but that's that's a whole different discussion but it's called immersion therapy but yeah (laughs) it, it but but one thing actually did jump out at me. Kevin McCarthy Towner was on the guest list. That's a state dinner. I know. It's a state dinner and he's a leader, but not every congressional leader is at every state dinner. And I don't know, it just it just jumped out at me. Maybe it doesn't jump out at you. But he's it jumped about, out at me as for the presidency. So 
<laughs> Patrick, we can't hear you. Yeah. The other uh, thing. Let's before, take advantage of this moment. Yes, exactly. Now we can say whatever we want. Yeah. You guys hear me now? Now yeah, we can. So Patrick, how about them Chicago Bears? Huh? Oh, boy. Oh. No, I was going <laughs> to say oh, wait, for the wait, McCarthy point. You. Howard, this had this list had grandeur of the first state dinner. I mean, that's yeah. that's that's what this was. Is it was they haven't done one because of COVID. So you know they brought out all the big you know the big bundlers, the family members, the entertainers. Like I mean, it yeah. was a true kind of a list, and I think that's you know that's just a product of it being the first one. Well, and by a major factor, it was the largest state dinner that has ever been hosted. There were 400 guests. They had to put a huge tent on the ellipse. They could not use the White House China for two reasons. A, they didn't have enough of it for 400 place settings. And B, they the White House Historical Society won't let the China leave the building. And so they wouldn't let them take the China into the large tent uh, down on the ellipse, actually, because it's a historical property. So, you know, there's there's the, there's a whole bunch of things. There was a large guest list for this. Uh, McCarthy, if this were a 120 person state dinner, McCarthy probably wouldn't have been on the list. But he was there. And that's a good segue to your friend, Kevin McCarthy Towner, because he's in for uh, I, I don't know what he's in for. Is he going to be speaker? Yes. He's got a, a very, very narrow uh, majority. If he is speaker that he's going to have to govern with, like what are, what's going on in McCarthy world right now? Yeah. He's first of all, he's going to be speaker. Um, I will, I will put some, some money on that probably at some point if, uh, if it's available to me, but uh, I'll put you know. some money on that sometime. Probably. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, if 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 Alderman bets me, I'm going to bet him. There's okay. no doubt about it. As long as I don't have to pay, I'm happy. <laughs> no, he's going to be speaker, but <laughs> but we could have, we very well could have a situation, the first since 1923, where we have multiple speaker ballots, uh, and so it's going to be it's going to be fun to see from a from a parliamentary standpoint, from a process standpoint, it's going to be fun to see. Um, but he's he's going to not negotiate with terrorists in this in this particular regard. And the moderate Republicans have actually uh, made it exceptionally clear to the Freedom Caucus. They've made it exceptionally clear to Democrats that they're willing, uh, if this goes on long enough, to work with the Democrats to try to figure out how to elect a speaker. Now, I don't think the Democrats will take them up on that offer because they'd much rather see uh, McCarthy and the Republican Party sort of you know, swinging in the breeze and, and uh, you know, to hurt their 2024 prospects. But at the end of the day, McCarthy will be speaker. It may take us a little while to get there. Uh, 1923, it took three days. It took nine speaker ballots to get there. And it took a lot of mediation from from Longworth to, to make it happen. And so, you know, I don't think it'll go on that long. Uh, but I do think by the end of probably January 3rd, because Congress starts anew January 3rd at noon, by the end of January 3rd, we will at least have a Speaker McCarthy. I mean, and, definitely, Towner noticed it, it was just so evident the situation he's in in the White House meeting with the four leaders, because you had, you know, Pelosi who's on her way out. You had McConnell, who's been overwhelmingly reelected by his caucus. You had Schumer, who's flying as high as he possibly could. He's, you know, possibly going to pick up a seat. And then you had McCarthy, who has not even been elected speaker yet. And he just looked, I mean, it looked like his sort of strategy was, was yeah. don't say anything. Don't make yeah. any faces. <laughs> just like, don't move. 
and maybe it won't impact the number of votes I'm going to get for a speaker. I mean, he he's it there was, and look mad. <laughs> it was a, a picture worth a thousand words for well sure said, because. Schumer, literally, the grin went from ear to ear. It was like a Lewis Carroll Cheshire cat look. And McCarthy looked embalmed. (laughs) He looked like he couldn't move. I probably shouldn't even be here. (laughs) I remember a picture from, you know, Obama, when he was first elected, went up to Baltimore to speak to the Republican conference. Um, and, And it was... Uh, you know, it, it was not a very good thing. I mean, it, it was ended up being contentious. Obama took some questions that were very contentious and he was contentious back. Uh, but there is a picture uh, that I have somewhere that uh, is Obama getting ready to walk out to give his speech. And the entire Republican leadership team is on either side of him. Uh, and he's staring straight ahead, looking mad as heck. And the leadership team is staring at him from each side, looking mad as heck. And so, you know, it, it reminded me of that picture uh, quite a bit. And obviously, uh, we know what the relationship was there, um, you know, continuing on between the Republican Congress and, and President Obama. Uh, while, while we're talking leadership, though, Howard, we should take a quick minute and acknowledge how graceful the transition on the Democratic side was, how uncharacteristically graceful and comparatively graceful uh, with the the Republican so unclear. We have a new leader in waiting. I'm not sure yeah, counter when the leadership actually happens. He's he's in. Yep. He's, he got the vote, but I I guess he we have a speaker and a leader at this point in, in the Democratic caucus. It's and, uh the yeah. first four positions have been filled. Years and years of planning, years in the making. I don't think there was years of planning necessarily, Howard. I think they finally decided they were going to step down. <laughs> I mean, I think well, it was. No, it was. no, Towner. There were years of planning that went into who would be next if and when Nancy ever decided to step down. Yeah, Nancy waited out a heck of a lot of people who she just didn't like is yep. what happened. Yeah, that's untrue. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair statement. But you said last week, Connor. It did. I mean, it. It's easy to kind of say the Democrats had this perfect plan and had seamless transition, and the Republicans look chaotic, which is true. But your point last week was correct, which is it's a lot easier to do these transitions in the minority, right? Like it's it's just exactly. It's way yeah. easier. That's what I was um, going to say. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Pelosi had her challenge getting her votes for speaker. I, I just, I, what, what well, seems different. Oh, yeah. go ahead, Mark. I was just going to say, let's be clear. At least it's clear to me. Were the Democrats still in the majority? I'm not so sure Nancy would be stepping down. <laughs> yeah. Me either. Yeah. In fact, I'm quite sure she would not be. Yeah. She's the. Not- the, the Turning thing that gavel over, it was taken from her. The thing that's so interesting about where McCarthy finds himself and why it's so much different than what Pelosi has had to deal with. I mean, she has had to govern with a very thin majority on the Democratic side, this Congress. Next Congress, assuming McCarthy, as Towner's predicting, is is elected speaker um he's gonna have to govern on the republican side with a very thin majority and people are saying well if she could do it he could do it 
Oh, it's not that simple because Towner, he is still the opposition party. Yeah. And there's a big difference between governing with a thin majority when the Democrats hold the Senate and the White House, then when you have to be the obstructionist opposition party and govern the House, but still get things done. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. spot. Yeah, it is. I, I actually think his position is a little easier than maybe Republicans had in like 2001, where they only had a three seat majority, but they had George W. Bush in the White House. That's what I'm saying. They actually had to get stuff done in 2001. So you had to hold together the entire conference. In this regard, if the House Republican Conference doesn't want to move something that's not going to be voted on by the Senate and not going to be signed by the president, then they don't necessarily have to move something at the end of the day. Right. They want to look that's proactive, right. but but they don't have to stress themselves. The biggest problem that McCarthy has vis-a-vis what Pelosi's situation has been through this this current Congress is that Pelosi had a six-person squad on the progressive side to deal with, three of whom were squishes when they needed her to be and would would either vote president or would would roll uh, when she really put the pressure on them. McCarthy's got a 30-person Freedom Caucus, and none of them want to be squishes in any way, shape, or form. And so you know, he, the 30-person Freedom Caucus more than overwhelms the, the majority that he has. And so it really becomes a well, negotiation on everything. But the thing is, he's got to, Patrick, go along with the... He's got... He, in order to be effective as the leader of a chamber when you're trying to oppose the president, he has to both be obstructionist, but sometimes he's going to have to go... Like on the debt ceiling. Yeah, uh, my suspicion to go is <clears throat> my suspicion is the strategy will be, and you saw a version of this with obviously Boehner had a bigger majority at eleven, but you're going to be facing the same configuration, right? Democratic White House, Democratic Senate, and Republican House. I think McCarthy, if and when he gets the votes for Speaker, he's going to empower his members uh, and committee chairman to investigate the administration, to use subpoena power, let them take a lot of their anger and frustration out with that. And then he's going to be sort of like a legislative check on a Democratic Senate. They're going to try and pass proactive legislation. But to Towner's point, they don't they don't have to either. It's not going anywhere. But I think on the big negotiations, I think it's going to be Mitch McConnell cutting the deals. And I think it's going to be Kevin McCarthy going along and doing whatever he has to do. That's what in 2011. McConnell was the architect of the Republican strategy on what ultimately led to sequestration and the deal we cut in 2011. Like that's what I kind of see that playing out. McConnell really being the lead Republican negotiator. I I think a a similarity and difference to 2011 also, though, um, is the 2024 election looming in 2011. Of course, the 2012 election was up next. But the party, even though there were many people contending at one point, I think Michelle Bachman was going to be the nominee, if you remember that weekend when, when uh, she surged. Yes. But but it was a very different. By the way, she'd be a moderate today, but that's a whole different. No question. <laughs> she would be, she'd be a rhino today. But but that's the point. That's exactly the point I'm I'm driving towards. The noise from outside of Washington that McCarthy has to deal with is is much louder Agreed. than anything Mark, Boehner ever had to deal with. Agreed. And Mark, to your point on like the next election, the one thing I think will be interesting about the difference between 2024 and looking back to like 
2012 and then 1996, like, you know, this is where age and experience can kind of can kind of matter here. Like in both cases with President Clinton and President Obama, you had these presidents in their 40s who had just gotten the crap kicked out of them in the midterms. And they were terrified that they were going to lose reelection. They were I mean, it was like they they couldn't sleep at night thinking that they were going to be a one term president. And they ultimately made compromises with the new Republican majorities that that maybe they didn't like. I mean, you look to, you know, welfare reform during the Clinton administration, budget sequestration and Obama. But it was like a political necessity for them to stay alive for reelection. I don't know that Biden thinks that same way. I think he's like he feels emboldened <laughs> he's twice by how Dem- their age. Yeah. He, well, he well, feels emboldened by how Democrats age, but- performed in the midterms. I think he's kind of going to be like, I, I don't know. I don't think he's going to be the same type of president after the midterms that Obama and Clinton were. Well, he had a much better midterm. Right. And that is, that's a a big factor too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he's in a, uh, he's just a different guy. He's already, as you saw, taken steps to rearrange the democratic primary process to his advantage. Right. That's the not so subtle subtext of putting South Carolina first. And he is in charge of the party, Patrick, in a way that that Obama and Clinton actually weren't. Clinton more so, but Obama just didn't involve himself in that. He didn't want to be, right. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Towner, we've had some interesting discussions this week. I know we all have about end-of-the-year maneuvering around spending, a spending package, the um, National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA. Um, tell us what's going on. What do you yeah. make of things as, as far as uh, the end of the year packages are concerned? Yeah, I mean, right now, nothing. Uh, well, not a lot's happening right now, but I think we're going about to get active. But we're going to be around uh, right up until Christmas, if not if not in between Christmas and New Year's. Quite frankly, uh, trying to wrap up a couple of these because. The Senate remains in Democratic hands, regardless of what happens on December 6th. Uh, there is more of an impetus to to move forward with clearing the decks of some of these large bills uh, at the end of the year. So you really have two packages that are shaping up. The first is a package surrounding the National Defense Authorization Act, which we passed every year for 61 years in Congress uh, and sent to the president successfully. Uh, that is going to contain a heck of a lot of authorizations. And there's been uh, bipartisan, bicameral negotiations on things like Coast Guard reauthorization, maritime reauthorization, State Department reauthorization. This is all the blocking and tackling that we always say on this podcast still gets done in D.C. Uh, this is very good evidence of it, that we're going to we're going to carry through a lot of committee work product uh, on that piece of legislation. We'll see that hopefully in the Senate as soon as next week. I, I'd love to see text today, quite frankly, but I don't know that they're going to get there because there's a few things still being uh, negotiated. The second package is the omnibus, the annual spending uh, appropriations. Attached to that will be some measure of a tax package. We don't yet know how big it's going to be because there is a disagreement between the parties on Democrats favor extending uh, the uh, enhanced child tax credit from COVID, which has a big price tag associated with it. Republicans want uh, an extension of the COVID R&D expensing for businesses, which also has a big price tag. If they can reach a detente, and add both of those, you know, I think we can move forward with with what I think will be a fairly robust tax package attached to the omnibus. In addition to that, 
They're going to attach some health provisions uh, on Medicare physician fee reimbursement uh, issues and, and some other things in the Medicaid space. And so uh, we have that second package is all hinging on uh, when they can come up with a top line uh, spending number for fiscal year 2023. Uh, Republicans have said, look, we need increases in defense. It's the same lines that always are. We need increases in defense. We don't want all this domestic spending. Uh, Democrats have said, we don't need the increases in defense. We need some more domestic spending. Let me interrupt you, if I may, just uh, for continuing uh, House and and Senate, but, but more House education from Professor French here. Who are the human beings who are doing this at this point? Yeah, I mean, theoretically right now, it is the chair and ranking member of the Appropriations Committee on both sides of the Capitol. And so uh, Deloro, who's the chair in the House, and, and Kay Granger, who's the ranking member for Republicans, and then two retiring senators, uh, Pat Leahy uh, for the Democrats on the Appropriations Committee in the Senate, and Richard Shelby uh, for the Republicans. That <laughs> like you sense. said, theoretically. But that's the theory, right? I asked the question. I could have really looked that up. I asked it's, the question yeah. behind the theory. Who are the actual human beings who are making this happen or not? It's really higher than that. It's it's Pelosi right now. It's yeah. McCarthy is somewhat involved, but it's more Mitch McConnell and Schumer uh, having those conversations. Now, McConnell and Schumer, because Leahy and Shelby and the Senate are so senior, McConnell and Schumer, you know, treat them as equal partners in this negotiation, quite frankly. Um, but but it's really, you know, there's a universe here of about eight people plus then the White House, obviously, in this negotiation that are that are coming up with those top line numbers. And at Which the is, staff level, Mark, I mean, there are each each leader has a policy director who is a really key person here. It's not like Schumer and McConnell are spending right. 12 hours going through every provision yeah. themselves. That's was certainly not yeah. going on. So, I mean, there are some key staffers here who really... Uh, well, have a lot of influence. And Patrick, you uh, had an opportunity to spend uh, a little time with uh, the majority leader in the Senate last night. Yes. What, what does he have to say about what happens next? Well, he seemed like he was in a really great mood, which uh, to your he point, had no grand, <laughs> he did have to enter uh, the event through a back door because there was about 200 uh big tech protesters with Jeff Bezos masks outside uh, chanting about the antitrust bill. So someone clearly got a hold of uh, <laughs> the invite for the event. But um, no, it was a good event. Uh, he feels confident on NDAA. Uh, he made some comments about things that our clients really care about, particularly the Safe Banking Act uh, as it relates to the cannabis industry that were very positive. He feels uh, strongly that, that we're close to a deal and it's going to be able to ride uh, on one of these end of the year vehicles, but he, uh, you know, had just come from a negotiating meeting. He was going straight back to the Hill, but he seemed confident that, you know, these things would get done. Towner was finishing up, I think, kind of the, this divide on the omnibus about Republicans want an increase in military spending, Democrats want an increase in discretionary spending. But Republicans are also saying, because Democrats pass these larger bills throughout the year, that that should sort of count as some of the discretionary spending increase they would ordinarily get, and they should get less in the omnibus. Democrats are pushing back on that and saying, I want dollar for dollar parity. And ultimately, they're going to come up with some kind of deal so everyone can save face. My suspicion is it's going to be around the Ukraine funding, and they're going to find some way to use that and the number they end up on as a way for everyone to kind of like walk away saying we got some of what we wanted. Towner, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I feel yeah. like that's where the deal is going to get cut. 
Yeah, I think Ukraine's going to get taken care of as an emergency yeah. supplemental attach. I don't think that's going to be a problem. I mean, Republicans right. are essentially saying we want the same deal we had last year. Yeah. Uh, we want we want the parity by percentages as opposed to dollar for dollar, which Democrats want between defense and, and non-defense domestic spending. And in addition to that, we want some of those contentious riders out. We want Hyde Amendment on abortion back in, like happened last year uh, when they ultimately reached an agreement. Um, you know, I think I think the things that a lot of people don't realize is that because there weren't 60 votes uh, in the Senate for for either party, obviously, over the course of the last several years, we've essentially had bipartisan negotiations on a lot of these spending bills year over year over year. One party has not controlled fully the appropriations negotiation process. There always has to be input from the minority because you need those those 10 votes uh, or or nine or eight votes from the from the minority party in the Senate. So uh, I think I think we'll sort of end up where we did at the end of last year, but with, you know, kickups for uh, for both of them. And can we just say to top line and Howard, I know you you uh, will have a comment on this, I'm sure. At the end of the day, once they cut their deal, an astronomical amount in new spending, like, I mean, mind blowing amount of of new spend of borrowing more money i mean it's it's really like when i think back in town or like when we worked on the hill oh, yeah. the, the percentage increases we're talking about now it honestly is like kind of mind-blowing i can i can't even imagine my old boss senator by a, a, a fiscal hawk democrat like being able to uh, like deal with how much new spending we're talking about it's it's really incredible yeah, we're talking about north of $1.7 trillion yes, in really. annual <laughs> discretionary spending, which means it doesn't include Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, interest payments on the debt, uh, you know, TANF programs, I mean, food stamps, everything, everything that would be on the mandatory side is left out of this. This is strictly what are the agencies getting next year? And we're talking that it's going to be over $1.7 trillion. We were at like a trillion dollars 10 years ago. It's uh, It's funny money. Yeah. Fundamentally, it's well, funny money. It's funny money the agency officials really like. I can tell you that. Yeah. Of course, I've been one. Yeah. It's it absolutely is. But um, it comes from something that uh, candidly I'm very ambivalent about because I I tend to be a big tax and spend Democrat, as we all know. Mark, but it comes you, from you actually the, aren't, but you play one on the I, podcast. I play, go go ahead. The, that's the role I play on the Beltway. Hey, when you cut your, when, when you have to pay your taxes and go to your accountant, we both know what you are and you are. Where is my salt deduction? But go ahead. Continue. <laughs> I want to know, damn it. Where is my salt deduction? Chuck Schumer promised me a salt deduction. Chuck Schumer lied to you. But what? Yeah, I need, that's why we got to get Joe on here so I can move to the middle. I'm, I'm staking out. Uh, some shaky ground over here on the left. But my point was going to be before hey, the your Democratic yeah. Party doesn't like giving salt deductions to rich people. Exactly. Like yourself, Mark. Yeah. The progressive, uh, yeah. the progressives that have taken over your party. Don't to the limit like, the limousine. Limis- 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 somebody said earlier it was only six people <clears throat> and three of them would roll. What, what happened a, to that? There's a special tax for people that pretend to be liberals and have fancy houses <laughs> right. on Nantucket. That's yeah. Well, that's why and, I'm and have taken up golf. <laughs> oh, it's so good. I know. I gotta admit, 
the trend line's bad here. I call the sucker tax. Hey, yeah. Mark, you're going to be a Republican in like two years. <laughs> yeah, well, I got a number from you offline here. I'm, I'm going to be making a call towner. Maybe maybe he has a registration form. Come on over. We yeah, always say we always yeah. say Democrats are are youth and and you know you get you get more conservative as you get older. Mark, that transition just started a little later in life for you. I think I appreciate yeah. that. I mean, this part on the economics, it's it is interesting for, you know, for how much sort of millennial griping there is about the state of the world and how baby boomers are leaving this country. I think about it as someone sort of at the beginning of my career, thinking about my kids with the level of borrowing. I mean, even if you as a progressive think the investments are worth it, you have to grapple with the reality that what we're continuing to borrow is unsustainable. And I, I don't know how anyone... But what I wanted to point out a little while ago before I sat down for the personal abuse part of the program... Before the roast. What I wanted to point out was that I can now move closer, Towner, to you and your party since you have become uh, deficit spenders. Uh, the reason it's a $1.7 trillion number is the Republicans are now uh, followers of John Maynard Keynes. It took a century, but you finally came around to the uh, New Deal view of federal spending. I, I don't know that we're necessarily, we want to provide for your common defense, Mark. I mean, we this is a this is an increasingly troubled world, and we want to make sure that that nobody can, you know, do a, yeah. a maritime amphibious landing on Nantucket. And you, and you know, you know, you're not getting away without hearing me say. I heard Marjorie Taylor Greene say something that didn't sound like that, Towner. But well, I'm pretty sure you did. But I, <laughs> can, we, can we come to the conclusion that Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene is not embraced by the Republican Party as a whole? But I mean, Howard, I, on this point, though, what Trump blew up. The, the Trump blew up the ideological <laughs> perspective of the Republican side that, you know, caring about the deficit was important. He just I mean, you look at the spending, the Trump years and the Democrats, you can count on one hand the number of Democratic elected officials who are like really focused on the deficit. I yeah. mean, they're just they're not there anymore. The, the they all lost or retired. Leaving. Spent, you know, borrowing is is not an inherently bad thing it's a right. it's a good thing especially Ooh. when when you can borrow inexpensively which is where we've been it's not where we are now and it's not a bad thing like you borrow you take you leverage your ability mm-hmm. to borrow to um spend to to cover yourself but bro well, it's, the country I, was built on debt yeah it's it's not a bad thing the problem is we just keep piling more and more and more and more and but, more. And we sort of do. What's that? We sort of do. I mean, it's we keep borrowing from ourselves. We are not borrowing. Uh, actually, our percentage of debt, our, uh, the total dollar share of debt held by foreign interests has gone down as Japan right. has actually is uh, divested uh, out of the United States recently. You know, we're still, I think, under seven trillion of the 30 trillion in debt is actually owed to somebody other than ourselves. Well, it, it doesn't really matter who it's owed to. The question is, how can we service it? And if we can't, what are the implications? Right. And at the end of the day, there's we can't like it's 
we've gone over a cliff and we can keep it. It's a Ponzi scheme. We can keep it going for some period of time, but there is going to come a point in history where some of this debt has to be forgiven. Yeah, but it's going to be forgiven and by us. Us can't is can't not. The president just do an executive order like he did with student loans and just forgive our own debt, and we can right. move on. Yeah, Biden can do anything by Come on, let's tie this thing up. Supreme Court. There is that judicial review thing that's going to screw up that plan. No, 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 us is not the public sector. It's the it's the private sector. It doesn't really matter whether it's held by China or it's whether it's held by Goldman Sachs. It matters whether. It's the U.S. government borrowing it from somebody else. From a national security point of view, I would argue maybe it's even better if some of, more of it is held outside the United States because it maintains international alignment. Yeah, it's alignment. Yeah. Well, so, we've seen interest rates rise. Our our actual annual interest payment in the United States is going to used to be around three hundred billion dollars. It's now could be you know approaching a trillion dollars with interest rate increases. God forbid a, a credit rating uh, downgrade if the Republicans mess around with the debt ceiling. Exactly. Next fall, for example, and well, you know. But and, I think to, thirty trillion, the, we can't pay it back. We're at a point in time where like thirty trillion is not feasible to pay back. Right. Every, and. And but we have we have breaking news, Howard, during this very podcast. Speaking of the economy, which yeah. is that the, we added more jobs than expected in November, and that means that the Fed's hope of raising interest rates less is probably no longer what happens next. So the. We can't repay the debt and a thousand other things are are a challenge. But meanwhile, the economy, the underlying job creating economy continues to perform. So it, it's a it's a complicated picture here. Absolutely. It is. You know, and, and go ahead, Tanner. It's kind of give you the last word, too, because, you know, look, Democrats just had a real conversation over the last two weeks about whether or not they would try to abolish the debt ceiling during this lame duck in the hopes of heading off what Republicans might ask for uh, in exchange for increasing the debt ceiling uh, when it when it uh, breaches likely next fall. And so, you know, in this country, I think both parties, quite frankly, are starting to ignore the debt. Uh, they're trying to they're starting to say, what do, what do we care at this point? As long as we maintain sustainable levels of debt, who knows what that is? I mean, you could ask any economist, you're going to get a different answer each time. Um, but as long as we maintain sustainable levels of debt, then we can just keep going as much as we want. Yep. Well, the country has challenges. It does feel like we're in a better place today than we were, you know. A few months ago, it feels like the country's come together in a lot of ways. The country rallied around the state dinner menu. I'm telling you, it was that Maine lobster getting that getting that served to President Macron. It's a new new day, if you say so, Mark. <laughs> All right, very good. Well, we will be back uh, next week for our penultimate Beltway briefing of the year. And have a great week, everybody. And we'll see you guys next week. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. 
The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.